Remain standing for the Holy Gospel as we have it from John the Apostle, chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. Hear the Gospel of the Lord. I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him, because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him, because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Yahweh, the, the covenant Lord of Israel, is often depicted in Scripture as Israel's shepherd. Psalm 23, verse 1, famously says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And this imagery is pervasive in the Old Testament. And the picture of a shepherd, of course, evokes God's tender care and God's provision for his people. But it also evokes his kingly authority and his rule. It's the Lord who is the shepherd. And thus Israel's rulers were called shepherds of God's people. Psalm 78 speaks of David, the great king, being taken from among the sheepfolds to shepherd Israel. And so kings, civil authorities, were shepherds. And they were supposed to act, if you will, in a certain regal and pastoral manner toward those for whom they had oversight. And it's because of this, because the kings were to be shepherds, that that famous indictment of false shepherds back in Ezekiel 34, which is really the crucial Old Testament background to this dialogue in John 10 from Jesus about the good shepherd. Because the shepherds of Israel were to be royal kingly shepherds, this indictment in Israel is biting, it's damning. In Ezekiel 34, you can see that the Davidic rulers, the kings, have exploited the sheep grievously. Instead of feeding and caring for them, they've preyed on them. Right? You know the old quip, shepherds are supposed to pray for the sheep and not pray on the sheep. Right? And they've, they've preyed on the people of Israel. They've neglected them. 
They've abandoned them instead of protecting them. And so the text there, the prophet says, Yahweh's going to remove the worthless shepherds from office. And he's going to rescue his sheep. He commits himself. He pledges himself as the God of Israel. He says, I'm going to reverse the work of these evil shepherds. I'm going to gather my sheep and tenderly care for them. He remains their shepherd. And yet he promises there, again, this is all in Ezekiel 34, he promises that a future Davidic king would arise. He'd arise over the people and he would shepherd them faithfully. The text there says, I will appoint one shepherd over them and he shall feed them. My servant David. I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David, a prince among them. Now, it's important to recall that David himself, David himself was long dead when Ezekiel prophesied this. And so we have this messianic prophecy of a Davidic shepherd king who will gather and who will unify and who will heal the people of God. And it's against the background of that stinging indictment which contains this wonderful promise of a future true shepherd king that I want to move a little closer to our text this morning. In John's Gospel, in chapter 9, just prior to our text this morning, Jesus had healed a man born blind. And for his confession of Jesus, the Pharisees had the man excommunicated from the synagogue. He may have also lost a TV show on the HGTV network. That's unconfirmed but he was excommunicated from the synagogue simply for confessing Jesus. And this man is clearly one of the sheep to whom Jesus is referring here. This incident provokes Jesus, and the Pharisees are the very embodiment of false shepherds. And so in John 10, when we get to our text, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees as the shepherds of Israel. So we'll make two points. Two points. The shepherd and the gate. Two simple points. The shepherd and the gate. So the Lord begins in verse 1. Very truly, I tell you. The original language is actually Amen, Amen. These are usually words spoken to confirm agreement after someone else has spoken. Right? Someone speaks and we say amen. In Jesus' usage, and in this Jesus is utterly unique, he prefaces what he's about to say with these words. We respond with amen. He begins with amen. And the sense is, Not only that what I'm about to say is of solemn, grave importance. The sense is that what I say, as the incarnate Word of God, what I say requires no Amen. For I am the Amen, the authoritative Word of God. And this is how Jesus often begins when He's in earnest. 
Very truly, I tell you Pharisees, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate, or in some Bibles by the door, but climbs in some other way, is a thief, a robber. In this world, sheep were herded into this walled pen, usually open to the sky, with a single opening or door in and out. Right? And this protected them from the elements, from beasts of prey. And if someone tried to get into the pen some other way, you could be sure his intentions are not good. He's a thief. He's a robber. And in verse 2 we're told, the one who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Right? He has the right to enter. He comes the appropriate way. Jesus doesn't assume these things. He's called and He submits to the Father. And to Him the gatekeeper opens. The point is, the true shepherd has the right to enter the sheepfold by the lawful manner, the lawful way. He comes, our Lord does, in the appointed fashion in obedience to the Father. And at the end of verse 3, we read, the sheep listen to His voice. He calls His own sheep by name and He leads them out. In the ancient Near East, a shepherd would often have an individual call for each of his sheep. He didn't just call them in general. And that's what John's envisioning here. And one scholar mentions witnessing this he says this, he says, Early one morning, I saw an extraordinary sight not far from Bethlehem. Two shepherds had evidently spent the night with their flocks in a cave. The sheep were all mixed together and the time had come for the shepherds to go in different directions. One of the shepherds, he says, stood at some distance from the sheep and began to call. First one, then another, then four or five animals ran toward him and so on until he had counted out his whole flock. The sheep hear the voice of their shepherd. And they hear it with understanding that it's him calling them. They hear it with affection. The sheep are not called in general. He calls them, the text says, by name, and you are not called in general. Jesus, the Good Shepherd, summons you by name, and by name means according to your own uniqueness, your own particular characteristics. And so this is a wonderful picture, not only of the power, the effectiveness of Jesus' call in our lives, but of His personal knowledge, His intimate knowledge and love for us. I've said it before, I will say it again. There is no higher theology in the Bible than Jesus loves me. This I know. It's not Jesus loves humanity in general. That doesn't do you any good when you're suffering. It's Jesus loves me. And so, this is a text which tells us that the Good Shepherd is intimately acquainted with us. 
that He knows us exhaustively, not simply here in this frame, because He's God and He has omniscience and all those omnis, you know? What my sister calls the three O's. Jesus knows your, your history, your quirks, your idiosyncrasies, your failures, your gifts. And he knows all of that and embraces you in love as one who belongs to him. Notice the text says, he calls his own sheep by name. He owns us, messes though we may be. And the sheep respond to this voice, to this shepherd, and they follow him. He leads them out, the text says. Verse 4, when he brings out his own sheep, he goes on ahead of them. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Some shepherds in this world would drive the sheep from behind. But this shepherd gets out in front of the sheep. The text makes that clear. He goes on ahead of them. He faces the dangers first. They follow. But there's nothing that Jesus Christ is calling you to or taking you through or asking you to endure or there's no place he's leading you or calling you to go where he has not first been there. He goes in front of the sheep. He knows abandonment, desolation, heartbreak, grief, sorrow, joy. He's in front of you. He's not way back there, and he's not just up there watching. He faces the danger and then says, get behind me. So in verse 5, the text says, these sheep, they're never going to follow a stranger. They're going to flee from a stranger because they don't know the voice of a stranger. Leon Morris, an Australian scholar, um, says that travelers in Palestine have actually seen this. That you could have strangers and they actually will dress up in shepherd's clothing, imitating the shepherd, and they'll attempt to imitate that, stra- that shepherd's call. And all they do is they drive the sheep away. They run. The sheep know you can dress like the shepherd, you can sound like the shepherd, you can imitate the shepherd, you can mimic the shepherd, but you're not the shepherd. And so the voice or the word of the shepherd is the key factor. The absolutely decisive thing for us as sheep is this voice. And knowing it. And this is because we are sheep. Sheep are a lot of things, right? They're they're not very bright. They wander aimlessly. They're creatures of habit. They can be both timid and stubborn. They can't find food very well which is a lot like me this weekend since my wife is out of town. (laughs) They're they're defenseless. Caring for them is very hard work. It's a dirty, 24-hour-a-day, intimate occupation. And the Scripture describes you and I as sheep. 
It's not a flattering description really, but it's a realistic one. We are the sheep of His pasture. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. And remember, Jesus sees the crowds. And when He sees them as sheep without a shepherd, this is an enormous tragedy for the Lord. And it provokes His deepest compassion. The only hope for us sheep is hearing the voice of the shepherd and forsaking strange voices. This voice, responding to it, is a matter of life and death. And so, we have to ask ourselves, whose voice are we listening to this morning? Now, how dominant in our psyche is the voice of Christ in Holy Scripture? What is rattling around in our heads? We need to silence and subordinate all other voices so that the word of the shepherd can penetrate into our bones and marrow so that we can distinguish it from all other imitations, however well-dressed they may be. Right? As, as the psalmist puts it, we need to pant for the law or the word of God. True sheep follow the Lord by following or hearing the voice. Christianity is an, you know, an auditory religion. It's about hearing. And they flee from strangers. And for us, this, this means nothing can substitute. Nothing can repair the damage of neglecting a serious engagement with the voice of God in Holy Scripture. You know, the Reformers used to always say, sacred Scripture is the voice of God. The living voice of God. That's what it means to follow the shepherd. The second point, the gate, the gate. So in verse 6 tells us the Pharisees didn't grasp the point about the shepherd. I'm not sure why. It's not particularly complicated, but they didn't grasp it. So Jesus is going to make it plain. He's going to basically say it again. Note verse 7. Jesus said to them again. Again, it's amen. Very truly, I tell you. I'm the gate for the sheep. Here he changes the metaphor a little bit from being the shepherd who enters by the gate to saying, I'm the gate itself. And in this context, the I am, I am the gate, has this overtone of divinity. John does this repeatedly through his gospel. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way and the truth and the life. Before Abraham was, I am. And here the thought is that he is the gate by which shepherds Israel's shepherds, if they're to be true shepherds, must enter if they're going to pastor the flock aright. Shepherds in the church, shepherds in Israel have to enter by this gate. Look at, look at verse 8. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. This, of course, doesn't refer to the righteous Old Testament shepherds. And the emphasis here is on the current religious establishment. The current hierarchy the people who excluded this blind man. They are thieves and robbers. 
They've refused to come to God who's revealed Himself in Christ. This is a strong word. All those who've come before me are, present tense, speaking of the Pharisees mainly, thieves and robbers. You know, this is Jesus' almost universal approach. He shows extraordinary pity to the vilest of sinners who seek to enter by Him. But His harshest rhetoric, His most scathing remarks are reserved for hypocrisy and for the self-righteousness of the religious leaders. And that's what this is here. It's a sober warning to all the officers in the church. There's a kind of damage, lasting, irreparable damage that those in spiritual authority can do that can't be inflicted by anybody else. Notice at the end of verse 8 in the text, in spite of these abusive shepherds, we're told the sheep did not hear them. The sheep have not heard them. The elect remnant of the Jews are gathered to Christ in spite of these robbers and thieves. And this indeed is good news. God preserves His true sheep even when the church fails them miserably. They're branded. They have this mark. This voice that we're listening to is the voice of the risen Son. It comes to us in sovereign freedom and eloquence. It overcomes all opposition and all deceit and all our carnality and all our fallenness. It's a powerful voice. It prevails. So in verse 9, Jesus repeats that he's the gate. But here, it's not simply the gate that true shepherds must enter. Here it's the gate that we sheep have to enter if we wish to be saved. Right? We're all familiar with this metaphor. Again, in some translations, it's door. Jesus is the gate we enter for safety or for refuge or for salvation. He brings us into the heavenly sanctuary. There's this wonderful story. Uh, it was is told by Sir George Adam Smith, who was one of the prominent Old Testament scholars in the world about a hundred years ago or so. He was traveling one day with a guide, and he came across. This is in Palestine. He came across a shepherd with a sheep, and the man showed him where the where the fold of the sheep were led at night. And it had four walls and an entryway. And uh, Smith asked the, the shepherd, that is where they go in at night? And the shepherd says, yes. And when they're in here, they're perfectly safe. But there's no door. Smith says to him, there's no door. And the shepherd says, I am the door. And the shepherd was not a Christian man. And he was not referring to the words of Jesus. It's unlikely he even knew them. He was giving the perspective of an Arab shepherd. And so Smith, you know, being an Old Testament scholar, asked him, he says, what do you mean you're the door? And the shepherd says, when the light is gone and the sheep are all inside, 
I lie down in that open space. And no sheep ever goes out except across my body. And no wolf comes in unless he crosses my body. I am the door. That's what Jesus means when he says, I am the gate. He lays down his life. He has his flesh and blood torn to keep you in and to keep the wolves out. If anyone enters by me, by the door, he will be kept whole. This is a costly metaphor. And here, we come as well to the heart of the scandal of Jesus and the scandal of the Christian faith. And it's this idea of radical exclusiveness. Jesus is the gate, he says. Not a gate, the gate. The way, not a way. He's the only way to enter into the fold. If anyone enters by me, he shall be saved. There is, we must state, a certain intolerance about revelation. Other shepherds, other ways are false. This is not because, you know, Christians woke up in a cranky mood. It's because we're simply trying to echo the words Jesus tells us. But this intolerance, if you will, leads, or it should lead, ironically, to a genuine kind of tolerance. And this is where the world is so wrong about what they perceive to be the narrowness of Christianity. Of course, we have to be careful about what we mean by tolerance. If tolerance means approving a view as equally valid with any other view, then no sane person is completely tolerant. In this sense, we don't tolerate the view that 2 plus 2 equals 5, or that murder is acceptable, or a whole host of other things, at least, at least on a Christian rendering of reality. But there is a legitimate tolerance, a legitimate, or, to put it in New Testament terms, forbearance, patience. And it's a crucial Christian virtue. And I think that is surprising to some modern ears because Christians have unfortunately sadly been intolerant at times. But forbearance and patience, these are only virtues when we have the deeply held conviction that the other is wrong and seriously wrong. Right? If you hold that people fashion their own morality any way they want, of what virtue is your tolerance? Right? If you take a, a laissez-faire, you know, a live-and-let-live approach to religion or sex or anything in which you tolerate and accept all points of view, what virtue lies in that? The absence of conviction is not tolerance, it's lawlessness. But we who believe that Jesus is the gate the way, are called to love and respect and show genuine forbearance toward those with whom we disagree. Those who disagree with us. Those who might ridicule or even kill us. And we often fall short of this genuine tolerance. Tolerance is impossible without convictions. 
And so we embrace Jesus as the gate, the only way, but we have to do it with the same spirit He had toward His mortal enemies. Right? The one who weeps over Jerusalem and who prays for His murderers, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. And at the end of verse 9, we find, again, perhaps surprisingly, that those who enter by the narrow way find no constriction. They find glorious freedom and liberty. They go in and out and have pasture. Right? David says this in Psalm 119. He says, I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. The exclusivity of God's law. The way it excludes all other options. Narrows down in its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. That narrowness leads to freedom. I've said before, it's like an hourglass. The history of Israel converges on Jesus and then through the narrow gate, Jesus, the world opens up and blossoms out to you. This is important to see. The narrow way is the path to broad, life-affirming liberty. Not to, not to intolerance or parochialism. In verse 10, we have another reference to the current religious leaders. They come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. They're not only robbers, they're destructive. They mangle the souls of the sheep. But Jesus has come, the text says, to give us life and more abundantly. So the liberty we have in Jesus is not simply liberty from sin and death. It's freedom for life. Freedom for engagement. And life abundantly. The door here, the gate, swings out to the whole world. This is often lost. And there are many among us who I believe could testify to just this. It was our conversion to Christ which activated our minds, which caused us to love history and the arts and all things true and good and beautiful. This is the testimony of the church down through the ages. This door opens out to the whole world because the one who is this door is the Creator, Logos, Word of God who creates and sustains and upholds and reconciles and perfects all things. Jesus is a life-giving Lord. He restores us to true humanness. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. He restores your mangled soul. That's what He's doing. And so life as Christ's sheep means, as Jesus puts it here, we come in and we go out and we always find pasture to feed on. This is the covenant of peace. The covenant of shalom and well-being that Ezekiel said would come under the Davidic shepherd king. And so, let us all, whether we're sheep or shepherds, and shepherds, it is good to note, are still themselves sheep, let us hear only the voice of this shepherd and enter only by this gate, for it is the glorious gate of heaven itself. Amen. Amen. Mm.